In one moment, it can seem like the door for ministry is closed. In another moment, it can seem like the door has opened again unexpectedly. This was true in the life of John, also called Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, which we'll begin studying. Born to a woman named Mary, he observed the ministry of the apostles. His mother's home became a gathering place for prayer, which we see, for example, in Acts chapter 12, the story of Peter being arrested, and then he comes to a house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And there's the surprising miracle that God has led him out of the prison and delivered him. The house that he comes to was the house of Mark's mother, Mary. Mark was a cousin to Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas is uh, a man of encouragement, an apostle who ministered in the early church. He is a uh, a notable figure, perhaps not as well known as Peter and Paul, but a significant person in the life of the early church. This same Barnabas was the faithful Christian who introduced Paul to the suspicious church after his conversion. Here's this guy who had been persecuting the church and attacking them and doing all these sorts of things. And now he comes and he says, I'm a follower of Christ too, and none of them believe him. But Barnabas comes alongside and disciples Paul and encourages Paul and introduces him to various congregations and bridges the gap to open the opportunity for Paul to have ministry. Mark, Barnabas's cousin, uh, accompanies Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And we just saw that in Acts chapter 12, verse 25 and 13, verse 5. For some reason, however, Mark turns back. Perhaps it was fear of persecution. Although, as we just saw what was going on in that section of Acts, there was sort of this remarkable miracle that... Uh, the false prophet, this magician, is, is struck blind. Perhaps for Mark, he saw that and he realized how real the conflict was between God and Satan, and he felt like he wasn't ready for it. Perhaps he got homesick. We don't entirely know. The text does not say why he left, only that he left fairly quickly into their journey. What was Paul's response, Paul's perspective on this? Well, in Acts 15, they're getting ready to go out on their next journey. And it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then chapter 16, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him. And Timothy begins accompanying Paul. Paul felt so strongly about the fact that Mark had deserted the work that he parted ways with Barnabas. Was this the right decision? What was the result? 
Luke doesn't comment one way or the other about Paul's decision. We could speculate and say, well, if God called Paul and Barnabas to go be the missionaries, then Barnabas and Paul should have been the missionaries and they should not have parted ways. But the text doesn't say that. It only says God sent them out on this first journey. It doesn't say whether God was pleased or displeased with them going their separate ways. What was Paul's attitude toward Mark later in Scripture? By the end of his life, Paul seemed to have changed his mind. He said in 2 Timothy, the other passage that was read shortly before his death, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So somewhere in the intervening time period between when Mark abandoned them at the beginning of the first missionary journey and where Paul is in prison at the end of his life after his second and third missionary journeys and the trip to Rome and potentially another trip over to Spain, according to church history, after that long stretch of time, Paul has said, you know what, Mark is useful. This person has abandoned me. He's turned away from following after God. These two people are busy in other places, but Mark could be a great encouragement and help to me here in Rome. Why don't you bring him with me, with you? He says this to Timothy from Ephesus. And even earlier in Colossians 4.10, Paul shares a greeting and mentions Barnabas' cousin Mark. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so he is urging the church with some measure of apostolic authority, and if nothing else, on the basis of his relationship with them, if Mark comes, I want you to encourage him. In much the same way, if there was a missionary that we supported and there was a fellow church, and we said, hey, we think you should have this person in, and if he does, you should greet him and welcome him and help him on his way. That was Paul's attitude even before the end of his life. In the book of Philemon, he lists Mark as a fellow worker. He accords to him the same sort of recognition that he does to Luke and Timothy and Titus and several others along those lines. And so we have this change even in Paul's attitude toward Mark over the course of time. As far as the results of Paul's decision, what did that mean for Mark? Well, it meant for Mark that Mark spent a lot more time with Peter and seemed to have developed the same kind of father-son relationship with Peter that Timothy and Titus seemed to have had with Paul. We don't know this for sure because it's one of the what-ifs that God doesn't open the window on for us to see what could have been. But it is very interesting to me, even as we look at Acts 15 and 16, that we go from the disagreement and Mark going with Barnabas and then Paul finds Timothy and takes Timothy sort of along with him to disciple him and train him and, and, and build this relationship. Uh, Peter had a similar relationship with Mark. 1 Peter 5.13, he refers to him as my son, Mark. And so, good or bad, this parting of ways provided an opportunity for Paul to build a relationship with Timothy and for Peter to build a relationship with Mark. The results for ministry in the early church were that two missionaries went out after Paul's disagreement with Barnabas, two missionary teams. Whether it was a right decision from a human perspective, God turned it in a way that it multiplied the ministry of the church. Much as he used even the sinful persecution of Paul and others much earlier in the life of the church to scatter them out from Jerusalem to where he wanted the gospel to go. Going back to the results for Mark himself, what changed in Mark's life? 
How did he, as a person, change from someone who quickly abandoned the people he was supposed to be helping to someone who was a useful fellow worker and trusted by the people that he had once betrayed, even on a minor level? There are several factors, I think, that impacted Mark's life. Barnabas gave him a second chance. Paul said, I don't think he should go, and Barnabas said, let's try again. Peter became a spiritual father to him. Now, this in and of itself is fascinating because we tend to think of Peter as this kind of brash, outspoken, in-your-face kind of guy. So for him to say, Peter is going to be the spiritual father of someone seems surprising. And yet Peter himself had been changed by his encounter with Jesus. Over the course of his ministry, he was the of Jesus' ministry and the disciples accompanying him. Peter is the one who is always first to say things, first to do things. And then Jesus says, you're going to betray me. Peter says, there's no way that could happen. And then it happens. And he's ashamed. And he's humble and he repents. And Jesus restores him to ministry. And he has a confidence, but it's not the same sort of brash self-confidence that he had before. It's a recognition that God has ministry for me to do and God will enable me to do that ministry. It's the sort of dependence on God that enabled him to be so sound asleep when God came to rescue him with the angel that he thought he was having a dream and it wasn't until the cold night air hit him that he suddenly realized, I'm actually free. He comes alongside and ministers to Mark. In that, Peter, I'm sure, shared of his time walking with Jesus with Mark. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Because Mark went with Barnabas over to Cyprus and then back to Jerusalem, instead of going with Paul much further away, Mark stayed more closely connected to Jerusalem. All of these things probably affected his eventual writing of the Gospel of Mark. If Barnabas hadn't given him a second chance, Mark might very well have given up on ministry. There are people who encounter apparent rejection in the context of the church. Uh, I wanted to be a Sunday school teacher, but the Sunday school superintendent didn't like me. You know, that, that, that kind of thing. And then they say, you know what? If they don't want to let me do this, I'm just done. If they don't want me to serve, I'm not going to serve. And they withdraw to the sidelines, or sometimes they just stop coming to church at all. There's people for whom that's their experience. Whether that would have been the case with Mark, obviously they didn't have Sunday school and all that in the, in the early church, but whether that rejection by Paul would have turned him away from following after God, which would have admittedly been his responsibility, his choice for doing so. But if that had happened, he might not have continued in ministry. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be turning away from God. Sometimes there's people who really want to be involved in church and they don't necessarily say, I'm done with God, but they say, I'm done with this church. I want nothing to do with them. That kind of thing could have happened with Mark. If Paul had taken Barnabas along, he probably wouldn't have had enough time with Peter to learn the stories of Jesus' ministry to be ready to write the gospel. 
Before we get into a survey of the book, I want us to pause and think about what the trajectory of Mark's life teaches us. The conflict, first of all, between Barnabas and Paul seems to have been two different approaches to ministry. Paul was unmarried, unattached, and anticipated and actually experienced intense persecution for the majority of his ministry. Barnabas faced persecution. He's there with Paul. He faces the attempt to stone him and and some of these other things that happen on their first missionary journey, but not as intensely as Paul was. Barnabas and Timothy and Luke, those guys seem to have been the recipients of persecution by and large because of their association with Paul. The Jews hated Paul because they felt like they'd been betrayed by one of their own. Here's a Pharisee. Here's someone who is on our side. He's persecuting the church. And now he's gone over to them and they hated him for it. And they did everything they could to destroy his ministry. So to the extent anybody was accompanying Paul, they also got some of that persecution. But Paul was the main target of it. He bore the brunt of it. Paul, for example, was the one who got stoned at Lystra and left for dead on the first missionary journey. Paul's experience and personality, I think, both affected his reaction to Mark's apparent abandonment. What was Paul's personality? Paul was a person of logic and order. He was disciplined. He was wholehearted in his commitment to things. And he seemed to have felt there was no place for someone who would quickly desert the work. If this person is immature, if he's not committed, if he's not going to do what needs to be done, then he doesn't need to be coming along with us. Especially realizing that the difficulties were only going to increase. I mean, they encounter this opposition from this guy named Bar-Jesus, and that was the first of many moments of opposition that I think God told Paul both by vision in certain cases later on in his ministry and even in the words around the circumstances of Paul's conversion, he's going to suffer many things and appear before kings and all that sort of thing. Paul knew that that was going to be the course of his ministry. And sometimes there's people who aren't ready for that sort of a ministry. Barnabas, however, had a family connection to Mark. He was his cousin. Rightly or wrongly, family connection tends to lead us to give more latitude to people when they make mistakes, right? Uh, The more personal of a connection we have with someone, the more patient we tend to be with them. Um, I mean, this is true, I mean, just obviously in the way that we interact with people around us. If you... um, I just give you an illustration of this. Uh, The neighbor next door to us came and cut down a whole bunch of trees in the yard, which totally sort of changed the perspective on things. And so if, if there's no interaction between us and the guys that are doing the work, then it would be easy to be mad at the people who are cutting down the trees when they're just doing their job. But when they come over and you have conversation back and forth and Sarah's like, at my request, hey, can we have some of the mulch? I mean, if you're going to chop them all down, at least we can benefit from it in some way. Um, It's harder to speak harshly and to be hateful or, or hard on people when we have more of a personal connection with them. 
And so the family attachment and the greater familiarity with Barnabas, I think, I'm not saying Paul hated, Bar- hated Mark, I'm just saying Barnabas had a closer connection to him, so I think he was willing to give him more latitude and more opportunity. Mar- or Barnabas also had a general disposition to encourage people, right? Paul was, and I'm not saying that for the most part he was ever sinful in it, but Paul was kind of like, here's what God's said to do. Stop being an idiot, shape up and do what God wants you to do, right? Some of you are like that. Some of you want to come up and give somebody a hug when they messed up and be like, all right, we got to try again. Barnabas was more like that second kind of person, right? Nobody want anything to do with Paul. Barnabas is the one who comes and helps him. Barnabas is so known for that disposition that he's called the son of encouragement by the early church. That's his nickname, the encouragement guy, right? I don't think Paul would have ever gotten the nickname the encouragement guy, right? And that doesn't mean that it was wrong or sinful, that God has made people in slightly different ways. Which is the right perspective? Perspective, rather. I think there's a place for both approaches, and I think God puts both kinds of people in churches. Pioneer missions work, especially in the face of increasing persecution, demands people who are ready and don't quit and don't turn back, as Paul pointed out. But if someone isn't there yet, there can still be a place of ministry as Barnabas believed. Now, there's a degree to which God is calling all of us to be committed and not turn back from ministry. But at the same time, I don't think God is calling every last one of us to leave here, wherever here is for us, and go somewhere else. People we don't know, a place we don't know, language we don't know, food we don't know, customs we don't know, all of those sorts of things. I don't think God calls every person to do that sort of work, although he's potentially calling more than are answering. Uh, going back to the jewels, I mean, he, in the process of leading up to them coming home from Brazil, he shared sort of more and more of his story of how God got him to that place. And even uh, when they were in town, Earlier, we had opportunity to sit down and and just hear some more of that. Here's all these years that God, I think, really wanted me to go, and it wasn't until 10 years down the line I finally go, or maybe it was longer than that. Not everybody immediately says yes to God's call, but God doesn't necessarily call everybody to the exact same thing. You might listen to all this. You say, I'm not a missionary. What does this have to do with me? Because Paul and Barnabas were both missionaries, so the question was not, should Mark be a missionary? The question was, should Mark be a missionary in a harder place of ministry or in a potentially easier place of ministry with people that he knew with more regular trips back home? You say, neither of those really is my circumstance, so what does this have to do with me? I think we should be open to the possibility that the circumstances of our lives are potentially God getting us ready for being a part of church planting or missions work down the road. At the same time, it could just be that God is helping each of us say, what is the next phase of ministry here in Metro Detroit? And so either way, if you're a person who tends toward laziness or fear or complaining when situations get hard, remember Paul's example. Don't quit easily. Don't assume you can't do a particular thing. Don't assume that God doesn't want you to keep walking through a situation with his help. That, I think, is what Paul's example calls us to remember. If you're a person who finds it really hard to understand why certain people aren't moving forward as quickly as you'd like, remember Barnabas's patience and encouragement toward Paul. 
The goal is not to make everyone the same, but to help everyone take the next step in following after God. That person who's immature and unprepared now could be the next generation of leadership in God's church, even as Mark stands alongside Timothy and Titus as Peter and Paul are being uh, crucified and put to death for their faith as their ministry is coming to a close. I've primarily been talking about people because I think the biblical uh, information is focused on the relationships between people that shaped Mark's ministry. But I think we should probably also make a quick application to our ministry in terms of all the extras that we take for granted. As we were reminded in our study a while back of George Mueller's life and in various missionary presentations that we've heard, we ought to be depending on God constantly. But in a society that's full of money and comfort, we find it easy to not depend on God. And depending on your circumstance, maybe maybe you've had to depend on God more in that regard, and maybe not, or maybe you used to and now you don't. There are many different factors, many different experiences for everyone. But that's something that we need to consider. As we know from reading the Bible, we can't take anything from this world, nor do our earthly works last very long once we're gone. Yet in a society that drives us to believe that more things or different things will fulfill our thirst for eternity, we find it easy to forget about eternity with God. So what does that have to do with our ministry here? William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, said, Expect great things and attempt great things in the context of seeing the gospel transform lives around the world. So I think the question you and I, especially in a long-established church, need to be regularly asking ourselves is, am I content to just maintain, or do I want to see God do great things through my life? What if reaching that goal meant some kind of major change in how we did ministry? I think of... What we were hearing Wednesday night, I think of conversations we've had with other missionaries in the past who've said something along the lines of every time we get $1,000 or $2,000, we're going to go build another hut in another village. We're going to send some guys over there. We're going to start another ministry. That doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to have a conversation and say, should we spend $20,000 on church pews? But if we say the choice is between $20,000 on church pews and potentially 10 or 20 new works started in villages in Africa, I think that's a equation that we should carefully consider. Would you and I pursue great things if it meant gathering in a different time or a different place than we're used to? Again, I'm not saying that we should necessarily pursue this option or that option with regard to the future of our gathering place. But if, and I'm saying if because I don't know this, if it gave us the opportunity to say here's all of the things we could potentially do to further God's work around the world, what's more important? Our comfort or God's work going forward? 
Would you pursue great things if it meant more time spent on gospel conversations with your neighbors? If it meant for in order for you to be able to do that, you got rid of your TV. You unsubscribed from some streaming service. You, whatever your distraction is. I don't know all the distractions. There are lots of possible distractions, right? One of the distractions for me lately has been um, getting adjusted to taking care of a larger space out in the yard. And so there's this temptation to say, well, I need this tool or that tool, and I need the better one, and I need that version of it. That can be a distraction. If you um, are doing whatever it is that you're doing, there is any number of things that can be distractions, right? When I was in seminary, it was, I had to buy this book and that book because those guys are buying those books. And this professor says, this is a really good book. But if you're not reading the books, books are heavy and expensive. Sometimes we have to shed the extra weight of things that are complicating our lives in order to do what God wants us to do more effectively. Sometimes that means figuring out a way to time things or whatever so that, I'm not saying this to brag, I'm just using this illustration. Um, we had, we grilled some chicken the other night, went over to the neighbor's house. I said, hey, do you want some? And we invited him in. He's like, I don't, I don't want to come in, but sure, I'd take some. What did that mean? It meant that Braden and I didn't get to eat a second piece of chicken. I'm not saying that I begrudge that, but there's a part of us that's like, this is ours, this is, this is only for me, so I'm not going to share it, and I'm not going to have a thought that says, how can I connect with the people around me? When it comes to our church and the activities that we tend to do, I enjoy potlucks. I enjoy Christmas and Resurrection Sunday special music. I enjoy a lot of the comfortable things that we do with other members. But if that's where we stop, here are the things that we do for times of fellowship, which are important. Here are the things that we do to have opportunity to have better conversations with each other, which are important. But if we stop there and don't say, all right, so what are we doing to connect with unbelievers around us? And how can we help each other more effectively do that? And how can we support those around the world who are doing that? And all of those things. If we don't reach the lost, and if we don't spur each other on to grow closer to Christ, it won't matter how many times we did the activities that churches normally do in the ways that churches normally do them. It doesn't have to be an either-or. We could continue doing much of what we've been doing. We could continue doing it here, but we need to ask ourselves hard questions and not just do things because we've already always done them. We should do them because we're convinced it's the best thing God wants us to do right now to accomplish his purpose for our church. We see God's vision for focused ministry and the example of Christ as portrayed in the book of Mark. First chapter of Mark, six times if I counted right, and 39 times in the book, 
we see the word immediately used to describe Jesus' actions or the responses of people to his words and actions. Or even synonyms. Mark 1.4, John the Baptist appeared. In those days, Jesus came and was baptized. Immediately coming up out of the water, God appears. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. <clears throat> Immediately, the disciples left their nets and followed him. Immediately, he called them. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. There's this emphasis on action and on God's power and on a response of the people to marvel at it because they're like, this isn't what we're used to. There's a focus on the kingdom of God as contrasted with the kingdom of this world. There's an emphasis in the Gospel of Mark on faith. Often, and mostly from unexpected people, like the woman who was unclean, like the Syrophoenician woman, like others throughout the book. We see a clear lack of faith from the Jewish people who asked for signs. Do another one. That was cool. A lack of faith from the disciples. What's their focus? Their focus is, who's greatest? Who gets to rule when you come back? You picked us. What's our spot going to be down the road? And those same people who are so concerned about who's the greatest, who's in charge, who's the best, who's the most important, <coughs> wander away from following Christ. And for a time, deny him, they all run away. A lack of faith is also seen in the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And this one is easy for us to focus on because we see it a lot in the Gospel of Mark. They criticize Jesus for eating with sinners. They condemn him for supposed blasphemy and defiling or failing to observe the Sabbath. They argue over his failure to uphold their traditions of washings and other rituals. They question his authority to heal. and They try to trick him into making a wrong step over issues like paying taxes. We see many accounts of Jesus delivering those who are demon-possessed from their afflictions. The kingdom of God coming with power and defeating the kingdom of Satan. We see, and I think perhaps not the most important section of the book, but definitely one of the more important sections in the book in Mark chapter 10. We see a Savior who says, in the response to the rich man who goes away because he doesn't want to give up his wealth, and the disciples saying, what are we going to get if we stick with you? He says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I think that is something that we need to pause and examine. Mark, I think, had to wrestle with this. 
Am I willing to branch out beyond the comforts of home and what's familiar and face the risk of persecution and all of those sorts of things to do the ministry that God's calling me to do? I think it took a good long while of him spending time with Peter to say yes to that question, to say, yes, I'm willing to go to Rome. Paul's there. Paul's not in a good spot with the authorities. I'm going to be in danger if I go, but God wants me to go anyway, and he goes. And so Peter as well. We need to constantly be asking ourselves this question. Am I serving myself or am I serving others as Christ did? As I said a moment ago, Mark learned the value of growing up, moving past the maturity of asking what's safe or familiar or what do I want. In his gospel, he points us to one who left heaven, humbled himself as a man, served without recognition, often in the face of rejection, and calls us to follow in his steps. Mark's life was a change from faithless to faithful. Does God want to make that same change in your life today? I don't mean necessarily that you don't know God and you need to trust him. I'm saying, in what ways are we committed to what we want instead of what God wants? And are we willing for God to work in us to change those things? And in the nature of our church, are we willing to pause and say, What does God want from us versus what do I want out of church? Do I want what some other church has? Do I want some memory from long ago? Or do I want what God wants me to do right now in this moment that would press forward in following after him? I don't know the answers to all these questions. I can't answer them for you individually because I don't know your heart. God sees it, and you can talk to him about that. And we can collectively figure out some of these things as far as our church. But as I look at the life of Mark, here's somebody who abandoned the work, but God didn't abandon him, and neither did some of the people around him. And that... change or trajectory or direction led to all of these other things that have had untold impact on people down through church history. If God can do that with Mark, then if we feel like we've been wasting time in some way, does God hold us accountable for wasting time and not doing what he wants? Yes. Does that mean there's no hope for the future? No. God calls us to say, all right, Here's where I was. Here's where he wants me to go. Like Paul said, I'm not looking at all these things that lie behind. I've dealt with them with God. Now I'm going to press forward. Sometimes there's this, there's there's cycles or periods of time in our life where we are faithful or not faithful. And we can look back on those and we can be discouraged or we can say, here's what God wants me to do right now. I can't go back and redo all that, but here's what I can do right now. God worked in Mark's life. And God can work in your life. God worked through the church, through the changes that he did in Mark's life. And God can work in the church through the changes that he's doing in each of our lives. God doesn't call us to say, evaluate your life 
based on most of the things that people value. God says your life will be evaluated based on how faithful you've been. It is required of stewards that we be found faithful. Mark wasn't faithful at the beginning, but by God's grace he was faithful at the end. And he became a useful servant in the church and we'll learn more about Jesus through his ministry, through the gospel that he wrote in the coming weeks. Faithless to faithful. What is God calling us to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you do All of us have moments of weakness, moments of fear, moments of doubt. We wonder, perhaps at times, are all these things that you have said really true? Satan causes us to doubt, did the resurrection really happen? Did God really say, just like he's been doing since the beginning with Adam and Eve? Sometimes in pride we say we have to have followed you faithfully for this amount of time and if, if there's a moment when we're not then it's all over and there's nothing that we can do and certainly there's consequences for different kinds of sin and certainly we should always be striving to turn from sin and to turn to you. But there are so many accounts in the Bible of people who had moments of denying, moments of sometimes for long stretches going their own way, that you restored, that you changed, that you worked through. Without in any way diminishing the steady and faithful example of those who haven't had those same struggles, I think for most of us, that's where we find ourselves from day to day. I thought I had this sin beat, but here it is again. I thought I was being diligent about this particular thing, whether it be witnessing or meditating on Scripture or spending time in prayer, and, and then I find I've gone several days without doing any of those things. Lord, if that's where we find ourselves, I pray that you'd help us to have hope that you can change us. Not to coast, not to say, well, I messed up again. Oh, well, it's just how, how I am and who I am. You don't want us to stay who we are. You want us to change us to who you want us to be. But that doesn't mean that there is this impossible expectation that we have to somehow muster up enough self-control that we can sort of do it on our own. It's only through your power, Lord. And so we pray for each of us and in the life of our church that you will direct us into what is best for our growth in further dependence on you and more being turned to marvel at the work that you are doing. I think there's a degree to which I would hesitate to pray that because that means being open to the possibility 
of not having enough money, not having enough energy, not having enough time, not having enough health to do the things that we think that you want us to do. But it's in those moments where we are lacking some or all of those things that your power shines forth more brightly. So Lord, help us to rejoice in the blessings that you give of food and health, of money and time, of family and comfort, of all of these different things that we can enjoy, but in the bent of our hearts that often become distractions as well. I pray that you would sharpen our focus, convict us of the degree to which we have settled for uh, routines, habits are good, but help each of us to be constantly saying, so what do you want us to do next? You've helped us have good success in this area. What's the next area you want to work on in our hearts and lives? Lord, you put us on this earth not so that we can live for ourselves, not so that we can live for ourselves even in the context of what we do or don't do at church and as your church. You've called us to live for you, that everything that we do eating and drinking, or anything else at all would be for your glory. Most of the time we go long stretches, moments, hours, days, without asking ourselves that question, is what I'm doing for God's glory or for my glory? What would be the thing that I should do or think or feel differently that would get me closer to that goal. We rejoice that even though there are moments when we are faithless, that you are faithful, that you cannot deny yourself. We see that in the life of Mark. We see it in our own lives. Help us to see in your mercy and in your grace an opportunity to rejoice and a motivation to live more faithfully for a God who would love us in that way. Not to presume upon it, not to waste those uh, times of mercy and grace, but to be spurred on to follow you more. We pray as we look through this gospel that we will see Jesus and draw closer to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.